Open our Bibles and uh, look to God's Word. We're in the book of Luke, uh, the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, the longest in the New Testament, and uh, we are finishing chapter 12. We'll start in 1249. As you're turning, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream from home or later as a recording. We welcome you. And we encourage you to come and visit with us here at Clifton Park Community Church and enjoy the fellowship of God's people and the fullness of our worship service. Our text, as I said, begins in verse 49 and runs through the end of the chapter. I'm reading from the ESV. It's part of the King James family tree of Bibles translated from Greek into English. This is God's word and Jesus is speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The words of Jesus. May God bless us as we hear, believe, and obey his word today. Amen. Uh, Jesus uh, continues to set his face towards Jerusalem. The the Gospel of Luke, this long book, and we started over a year ago with chapter 1, Around chapter 9, he, he turns in the, the, the story, the plot, which we know so well, and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And, and by the time we get to chapters 10, 11, and 12, he's intensified his teaching of his disciples and his words to the crowds. Jesus soberly speaks as the shadow of the cross falls over the scene. The place where Jesus was going was a place of distress and death. We know what's coming for Jesus in Jerusalem. He knew what was coming in Jerusalem, but he nevertheless went to pay the price of redemption. In his teaching here this morning, Jesus speaks that the shadow is also falling on the disciples. There's distress awaiting those who would follow Christ, not because we are going to Calvary directly, 
But there is a price to be paid for faithfully following Jesus. It could cost Christians dearly. Your dearest ones may dislike you and disown you. And before he's done with today's passage, Jesus also speaks of the folly and and the dreadful fate of those who are in denial and those who are in debt and won't clear that debt as they could by the gospel. The Messiah had been among them doing miracles. He'd been preaching. He had disciples. People had seen lives changed. And yet they denied what they were seeing. They ignored it. As the day of accounting drew near, they refused to settle with God and heed the message of Jesus. They would have to pay the price for themselves, Jesus says, to the very last penny. So in our text this morning, Jesus is speaking very soberly. Those are the words. This is where we've come as we're studying this book that shows us that The things we know about Jesus are true and it's worth believing in him. That's Luke's agenda. This passage is sobering. So let's take a look and may we be right with God and not have to pay that dreadful price ourselves. It does begin with these words uh, as Jesus is speaking in verse 49 and then 51, 2 and 3 about the price to be paid by disciples primarily that's where he's going it starts very broadly in verse 49 with these words I came to cast fire on the earth that is not often the favorite bible verse of people who read the bible Uh, Jesus did say it Jesus said many other things that we love to quote he said I'm the good shepherd he said I'm the bread of life I'm the light of the world amen Jesus also said, I came to cast fire on the earth. I thought Jesus was the bringer of good news. Isn't that what the angels sang about when he was born, as Luke records? And Mary was singing, her cousin Elizabeth was singing. Everybody started off singing. This is great. Here comes Jesus. But when he comes... And it is good news, and it does bring us joy. It makes it possible for us to have peace with God and possibly peace with men. That comes up in a minute. Jesus, his present is is like a fork in the road, though, and his presence and his claims and his call to belief uh, brings a point of decision, and it divides, as we'll see. Why does Jesus use this language of fire? We should know what fire represents in the Bible. We know there was a flood when God judged the world and he said, I'll never do that again, but the world would be destroyed in the last day by fire. Fire fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire represents judgment, the consuming of sinners in their sin, Or, as we also see, the New Testament makes clear that fiery trials bring about the purification of faith in those who believe. So there's two aspects to this bringing of fire. And which of the two is implied in Jesus? I think he speaks of both, really. 
Do you know back in Matthew's gospel chapter 3 when Jesus was about to take the scene, John the Baptist was out there getting ready. He was the front man. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets running around dressed like a prophet. And he told people what to expect when Jesus appearing. So from Matthew 3, this is what he says. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but... He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, this is Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist isn't singing, but he's telling it like it is. When Jesus comes, he will have multiple effects upon people on earth. He will come and and welcome others. They'll be born again by the Holy Spirit, and they'll follow him, and they won't go to anyone else. We just want to be with you, Lord. That's great. But his presence also introduces the first flames of judgment. And John the Baptist also adds another metaphor from the Bible, a winnowing fork. You know how you used to thresh grain? You'd take a fork, throw the the grain with its husk in the air, and it would get separated through that pounding, and the grain would fall, and the husk would blow away and then be burned. We often neglect Jesus' role as judge and the fire he brings. The entire work of Christ is in view in John the Baptist's words. And here in our passage, Jesus introduces it, right? He's talking to his disciples. Hey guys, I'm also bringing fire on the earth. And word that it was already kindled. He's looking to the ultimate end, the consuming judgment at the end of time. But it's coming even now. Because he will continue. We'll get to the baptism comment in a minute. But in 51 he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, so this is happening now, Jesus says, from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two. And he goes on in great detail about division. What's that about? This casting of fires of judgment and refining has these two dimensions and... It will lead to divisions. It will lead to divisions. One of the uh, smart scholars who's written on Luke said this, Fire is the spiritual power exercised by the Lord through his word and spirit for the undoing of those who reject him and to the refining of those who believe in him. And as he refines... And as we follow, and as we're set apart from the world, people are going to react to that. From now on, in other words, he speaks to disciples, if you're following me, you've got a new life that you're living, be aware that this will happen. Not in every case, not in every Christian's experience. And sometimes it happens for a while, and then it, 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 you get past these divisions. 
Jesus lists the tensions and divisions of the closest family relationships. And he's looking around at all these men as he says it. And he gives this detail upon detail. He doesn't just say divisions and give a number, but he names the roles. He names the people. He had met Peter's mother-in-law. He had been in the home of some. He knows that for some of those men following him, and perhaps in the larger circle of disciples, some could not go home. We see that in the world today, especially in the Middle East or in the Far East. Someone may announce that they've come to faith in Christ, Jesus, Yeshua, Isa, and the family puts out a contract on them. We will not have you embarrass our family. It's almost too much for Americans to understand the, the vendetta that a family can have against someone who would profess faith in Christ. Great cost. We're talking in the modern day. But perhaps you know something of this. Uh, you're a believer and you, and you go visit relatives and they don't want to hear it. They feel awkward around you because you might say something, even if you don't say something. Jesus speaks that if you follow me because of who I am and what I've brought into this world, the gospel and the first flames of judgment and refining, these differences will play out painfully for you. Matthew's gospel again says this, which is a parallel passage, Matthew 10. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Matthew 10, 36, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Wow. Why would Jesus tell us this? Uh, that, that doesn't seem to be a way to win friends and influence people. You're trying to gather people. You call him to follow you and you tell him this? It's full disclosure. You really have to know who Jesus is. You have to fear God more than you fear men. Not that you try to cause division. Don't be doing that. Don't be rude for Jesus. I hope you know what I mean. But be filled with truth and grace. One little footnote for application. Try using questions instead of preaching. What do you think of? Why do you think that? Have you ever wondered? This holiday, use questions. You know, I think Jesus used a few questions in his day. Maybe look some of them up. Jesus has some questions here today. We'll get to them in the last paragraph. But he starts out with this reference to fire and then explaining the divisions, the refining aspect, the cost that is paid by disciples. Jesus makes it plain. Fellow believers, we need to expect that may happen to us. We need to explain to young new believers that following Jesus, as happy as it is for you and me, other people are going to react differently. We need to be prepared for that. And we need to accept that. 
For Jesus alone will bring us to the Father. He alone has words of life. Our faith in Christ is not in vain. Secondly, there's this comment in verse 50, and I've made it its own heading in today's sermon. Verse 50, Jesus, after talking about the fire, said this. uh, Hang on, verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Something that's going to happen to him. He's using a passive voice. The first thing about fire, Jesus is doing it. It's his activity and mission. Here, do we notice it's this passive voice. Something is going to happen to him. He's calling it a baptism. It's a baptism that brings him distress. And it's not yet accomplished. Just to be blunt, I'll tell you what this is. It's nothing less than the mission of Jesus. God sent his son into the world to die, to lay down his life for his sheep. This is a baptism of death. Jesus approaching the cross, which wasn't yet accomplished, but would be, Jesus is saying, I have this and it's distressing. In Mark chapter 10, further along in the gospel story at that point, in Mark 10, Jesus is speaking to disciples who say, we're not going to flee when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll be with you to the end. Jesus says this, Mark 3, verse 38. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized, with which I am baptized? It's a reference to his death, this concept of baptism. Now, let's back up a second. I thought baptism was when you get covered with water. Yes, you can either be dunked in the water. Uh, The word baptizo can mean dunk or immerse. Uh, So if you see a a donut shop called Baptizo Donuts, uh, you know that it's a Christian store, right? Uh, it, It means to be immersed and to be covered. The imagery goes all the way back into the Old Testament. As the Reformation Study Bible says, baptism also reminds us that the floodwaters of Noah's day covered and destroyed the wicked. And floodwaters covered and destroyed Egypt's hosts as they perished in the waters of the Red Sea. To be covered with water is one way of experiencing death. And poor Jonah, he went down, but he came up. And you know, even modern Christian New Testament baptism, when we uh, take in a a new believer and and they publicly confess Christ, they're laid down into the water as almost into a grave. And they're covered just for a second. And then they're brought back up. Christian's baptism signifies dying to an old way of life and then living. So what Jesus says in verse 50, when he says, I'm facing this dreadful baptism, he's looking to his death on the cross. And why is it dreadful to die? Well, Jesus was going to die in the place of sinners. He had no sin. He had no fear of death. Even in his human incarnation, there was no wages of sin that he would experience personally. But he goes because he's going to drink the wrath of God against sin. 
There's another metaphor, it's not explicit in our text, this cup of God's wrath. But it is often linked with what Jesus says about his baptism. That's what he said in, in Mark 10, 38. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism? So Jesus sees his death as drinking the wrath of God against sin that he would bear. This language comes from the Old Testament. If you've read your Old Testament, it sounds familiar. For instance, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 51 verse 17 is one example. Isaiah 51 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Because Jerusalem was being sent into exile for their sin. They were drinking the cup of wrath. And Jeremiah 25 and other references in the Bible talk about this experience of God's wrath against sin. It's the language when we get to Luke 22 and we get to the garden and Jesus is praying. He says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this cup of wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The death of Jesus was distressing because it was real. It was painful physically and painful spiritually. Jesus took what we deserved. He was innocent. He had nothing to fear from a holy God or from the commandments of God, for he had kept every single one his whole life. But the pinnacle of our Lord's agony was in the garden and then on the cross. He willingly went. And he longed for it to be accomplished. He did his father's will. And as the savior for these disciples, he wanted them to know. I'm going to face this baptism. You face these divisions that come up. With courage. He's, there's, he's connecting. The overall theme of all these paragraphs is there's a price to be paid. Jesus is going to be ex, ex, exacting a price from sinners. He's going to pay a price for his disciples. His disciples will have to bear their cross for him. But before we move on, I want to make it clear. Jesus goes to the cross for sinners. And although it's distress for Jesus, it is deliverance for us. The gospel, the, the message of the cross is good news for you and for me. It means we will not pay for our sins. Although we die, the sting is removed because of Christ. Remember the victory song of 1 Corinthians 15? Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Ha <laughs> ha, Jesus has beaten you. Because of his resurrection, we know that to be true. So do remember, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is good news. If you don't yet know Christ as Savior, may today be the day. He has paid the price so you don't have to pay. You can get into heaven free. 
because of him. And he wanted these disciples to follow him. So he tells them, I will do this. And yes, for following me, there will be divisions you will face. But it's of far less consequence than paying the price yourself. Jesus is both the judge of the world and the hope of the world. Let's see where he goes next. Here in verse 54, this next section, I'm I'm putting these two paragraphs together. Uh, There's uh, uh, now a change in his audience. Verse 54 said, he also said to the crowds, he's lifting his gaze as it were beyond the, the inner circle of disciples and preparing them for the shadow of the cross. He's speaking to the larger crowds that are following and looking and listening, maybe especially those in the back that have been holding back. And he says, there will be a price to be paid by the deniers and the spiritual debtors. These two paragraphs connect with the urgency Jesus had often brought to the crowds that followed him. Do you remember what the previous sermon was about, the previous paragraph? I hope you do just with a glance back there. He talked about the master showing up and will people be ready or will he catch people unexpected? He's trying to tell them there's an urgency to be ready in this life before you enter eternity. And here in verse 54, he says to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Jesus talks about weather forecasting. If you meet a meteorologist, you have a great gospel entry point. What is he doing? He's saying, we know how things work. When you see certain evidence in the weather, it's a no-brainer. When you see Thick, angry clouds come over Clifton Park and they're really dark at the middle of the day. You might expect a few raindrops. Or when you know the temperature's plummeting, those raindrops will become snowflakes. Jesus starts with a no-brainer. Everyone in the Middle East, where the weather pattern was pretty well fixed, knew that if clouds were coming in off the Mediterranean over the land before they hit those Judean hillsides, the Shephala, the the plains that ran north and south in Israel, Tel Aviv's on the plains and all of that, would receive rain. It's a no-brainer. You see the clouds, you expect the rain. Or when the wind would come up from the south across the Sinai Peninsula or the arid regions down by Beersheba and the southern places by the Dead Sea, you know that the southern wind from the south will bring heat. So when you see the Messiah here doing good things, raining blessings on you, and speaking with warning words about being right with God, how come you can't figure it out? That's Jesus' point. Like the parables, Jesus draws upon common sense to say, believe the evidence that's before you. Connect the dots. 
We don't need to press the point uh, endlessly about weather forecasting, but Jesus is basically saying, you guys are hypocrites because you can see evidence and come to a conclusion, yet you're digging in. You're resisting me. How else do you explain me? They didn't want to. They lingered at the back. Verse 57, Jesus is blunt with these hypocrites. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Douglas Milne observes, many people around the world, even within churches, live as though God had never intervened in history through Jesus. They can predict horse races and read share markets. They may rely on horoscopes for future guidance, yet they do not consider the gigantic meaning for the world and for their own future of the coming of Jesus into the world from God. They, we, are no better than the people of Jesus' day who read the weather patterns but fail to understand the change in the times brought about by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity is nearly spread across the entire globe. No figure of history is more well known than Jesus. Why is that? There are claims that he changes lives. He gives hope to the dying. He gives help to the living. He's alive. It's real. His power is at work in those who believe. But the world uses the name of Jesus as a swear word. Why all this disdain for Christ? Because it's true and men and women are in denial. They're running from the very one they should run to. So Jesus warns them. Jesus warns them. Following up on his question in verse 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? He says this, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. So he's starting, as it were, a little mini parable. And he's going to talk about being in debt and and not having a very strong defense. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. He's saying, you know the urgency of seizing an opportunity, cutting a deal, making it right before it gets worse. That's the little mini parallel. If you see who I am and react to the evidence, you can be right with God by faith in me. A weak defense means you should seize any opportunity that comes for an out-of-court settlement, as it were. These people should be reconciled with God who sees their sin and knows their guilt. They should be reconciled now before that day of judgment. Before the fire falls in judgment. Before the master of the house returns to find some servants screwing around. While there is yet time, 
you know people that are just like those Jesus is calling hypocrites. They know enough of what the Bible says. They know the claims of Christ, but they don't wrestle with them. I'm always excited to hear about someone with a relative who's seeking truth and they're studying and they're pursuing and and sometimes it's vague. They're looking at all sorts of religions, but if they study the claims of Christ, the truth will shine. The truth will set you free, says Jesus. Jesus asks people to come, touch, touch my scars, check it out, think. Christianity isn't check your brain at the door. No, Christianity says, come and reason with me. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, because only Jesus can pull that off. Well, there is time. We don't know how much time we have. We schedule. Um, I'm often accused of having too many alarms go off on my phone, but it keeps me on schedule. I have an alarm for this, an alarm for that. And it's like having an extra secretary. What alarm do I set for the return of Christ? What alarm do I set for the day when my heart and breath will stop? You don't know either. I can tell you that as a young pastor in the 1990s in Rockland, Massachusetts, I preached to Dot Stenberg and her husband. They sat off to the right in this colonial church, and in the afternoon, mowing the lawn, Mr. Stenberg died. And before the sun went down, I was in the hospital room. Dot is short for Dorothy. For the first time as a pastor, I'd been to morgues before, standing with someone who was listening to me preach. And he's face to face with his God. Did I do my job? We don't know what a day will bring forth. Let's not just say this is all religious talk. This is all Bible talk. No, this is the world we live in. You will see headline after headline. Oh, that famous actor, he's younger than me. He's dead. We know that's the course of all human flesh. We will all die and enter eternity. We'll go to one place or the other. Those things are facts. What Jesus is pleading with here is that we be ready. Take account of your guilt before God and, and clear it up. And there's only one way to do that, to come to Jesus, the one who will die for you. Well, there is time. Jesus is pointing us to this window of opportunity. And that brings me to my closing exhortation. There's a phrase here, you don't see it unless you know the Greek at the end of verse 56. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? There's a couple of different Greek words for time. One was chronos, and you can guess that has to do with chronology. 10 o'clock followed by 11 o'clock, and the pastor will be done before 11 o'clock. Chronology, sequence, arithmetic time. This word is not chronos. This word is kairos, meaning an appointed time, an appointment, an opportunity. We might say a window of opportunity. Jesus was speaking to those who were in his presence, listening to his words, saying, do you hear? 
do you understand this window of opportunity? Limited time offer, as it were. He says that to us. I'm preaching on this part of the Bible today because we're just moving through Luke. I would have preached on it last week, but I missed a Sunday because of COVID. And so my schedule just got bumped back. Brian preached on something else when I was gone. And and by the orchestration of God, who's ever watching now or sitting here now, is hearing this now. This is the window of opportunity. And this is the free offer of the gospel. Whosoever believes shall be saved. It's the present moment of opportunity. And get this. Jesus called those people back then hypocrites. He hadn't yet gone to the cross. He hadn't yet risen from the grave, did he? But we know the tomb is empty. We know That those disciples he commissioned all died a martyr's death, believing with their own lifeblood the truth of Jesus' claims. We know so much more than they. Would Jesus call you a hypocrite for delaying or denying? How much more responsible are we, this side of the cross, for understanding Jesus? We have the whole of the scriptures put together by the Holy Spirit that we would understand not only what Jesus said, but why. And these things are written that we might believe in his name and in believing be saved. I urge you to decide today who Jesus is and what you're going to do about it. Enough riding on the fence. Enough being at church because somebody expects you to be here. You are here at the appointment of God. You're hearing these words from Jesus. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Because of Jesus, we can have peace with God. I love the promise that John's gospel records, and I'll close with this. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, so meticulously gathering the the teachings and life of Jesus for us. And at this moment in time, in our day, may your word hold sway over our souls. For those of us who have believed, Father, may we be strengthened to face the divisions we may experience. May we see the precious work of Christ on our behalf. And Father, today, for those who have yet to believe, may this be their moment, their new birth, their eyes open to behold the Lord of glory, to see and love Jesus. Father, do what only your spirit can do to bring men from doubt to faith, 
to decision from death to life. We pray your blessing upon the preaching and believing of your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.